Christopher Kassan, and this is Ireland's Edge. On this episode, School's Out. How should a year of disrupted distance learning change how we think about education? The COVID-19 pandemic led to months of school and university closures that forced young people and their parents and teachers to adapt to different ways of learning. Despite enormous effort, patience and creativity, cracks have shown. More than a century on from Patrick Pierce's famous call for a more progressive and holistic approach to education, rigid exams and entrenched inequalities still too often persist. So where do we go from here? To discuss radical change at Ireland's Edge, I was joined by Acting President of University College Cork, John O'Halloran, Dublin University Senator Lynn Ruan, and folklore lecturer Billy McGlynn. So I thought I might ask, John, you became interim president of University College Cork right at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, you know, an extraordinary time to have to take over an institution that was going to deal with something that it hasn't had to deal with for over a century. Just wondered if I could ask you, what has been the experience for University College Cork and for you of adjusting to working in the pandemic? Thank you. Um, very nice to be here, Chris. And, and I suppose for us in UCC, we built our university during the famine. Um, so we, this is the first pandemic we've had, but at least we, we constructed university during the famine. And I'd just like to give a shout out, first of all, to our students, actually. I think, you know, students are the core of what we do in, our, in all our education, from my point of view, and where our students adapted and responded to the uncertainty of learning. Um, and then our faculty have just, uh, remarkable, we turned over university uh, from lunchtime to six o'clock, we were given six hours to shut a university of our scale, 22,000 students, uh, research-intensive university, and to keep our focus on, on, the, on the learning. And we learned very, very fast, actually. Um, what, what do we have to learn? We learned, first of all, to get material online. It's not about dumping stuff up there. Um, and, you know, maybe some of that happened, but actually it's about engaged learning. It's about listening to our student voice and listening carefully to that. As the, the crisis developed, I suppose, first of all, we were close to the end of the semester, so there was some comfort in that. If we didn't have semesters, certainly when I was in university, we did all our exams at the end of the year. I don't know if some of you are old enough to remember that, but certainly when, once we started to semesterize the programs, it means the students had concluded some of their assessments in, in December, and then it went into March. So we were very close to the end. So there was a, a bridging gap of a few weeks um, so I really started to focus on assessment and that was a real learning curve because we were all used to the big halls, big pens for the Leaving Cert, no different university, which is remarkable actually. Um, so that was one of the biggest challenges and from our students' point of view, they needed that to be demystified and it was a campaign happened across all the universities, including Ireland, uh, what's called no academic disadvantage and I sat at home one night and through uh, my Twitter feed I could see there were 6,000 petitions to me as the, the, the as registrar deputy president as I was at the time and then subsequently interim president to me, have no academic disadvantage. And we didn't have that anyway as part of our system, but of course it was a black box to the students. And we'll talk about the Leaving Cert later, I think the Leaving Cert was a bit of a black box too. Um, so what do I mean by that? It meant the students didn't really know how we conducted assessments, how we moderated grades, how we examined every student and when they get a dip we said, was there a good reason for that? And we were able to, and that's what our faculty do all the time actually. So it was about bringing our students on that journey and bringing them into the room actually. So we brought our students into what we, we great terminology. Um, we had a business continuity group for examination. So sounds great, doesn't it? But what it really meant That's is our... very exciting. So just when people came into the room, 50 people actually. We had a log of the issues with the students. We co-constructed with the students. What were the big issues for them? Was it broadband? Was it assessments? Was it in-class tests? Or whatever it was. So there was an honesty. 
there was a, a meeting of minds to try and work out what, how we could best assess our students. And, you know, I think we came out the right end of it. Um, we graduated students in medicine at very early, early in the year, get them into the, into the opportunity in the workforce. And for us at University College Cork, of course, one of the challenges for us is that we have a lot of accredited programs. So even though I enjoy the freedom as an academic to teach programs, there were certain constrictions and constraints on us. So we had to make sure that the accrediting bodies were on board for the pedagogy and delivery and then for the assessment. But I would say the partnership between our students genuine partnership and the honesty where they said actually this didn't work and this did work yeah. and we listened that to me was what so I learned a great it's an extraordinary experience for students and their lecturers because it is as you said unprecedented <laughs> yeah. in some ways and it has been experienced by students of different subjects but students of different backgrounds and students in different institutions in many many different ways and Lynn you represent uh, you're elected by a university constituency in the Shannon but you're also a mother of one daughter who is in college and one daughter who is still in school so I wonder if I could ask you the same question that I asked John which is like what is your experience of this very strange time being um, through their education but also through the work that you do on education? Um, I think I suppose to answer as as a mother um, at home, suddenly at home with her two children, um, it was quite a positive experience actually for me. Um, I think what it also though done was reinforce my ideas around privilege and disadvantage because it was the first time in our lives that um, that I was at home but still um, secure in earnings, um, feeling safe, feeling secure, no longer in this kind of battle for survival. So actually I was able to adapt at home in a much safer way than I probably ever have in my entire life. Um, so in the beginning, I suppose, I, I took some comfort in that and acknowledging that, that in that stillness, I was okay. Um, my daughter, um, my eldest daughter, who's in third year in Trinity doing English and film, obviously they adapted to online as quickly as they could. Um, and for her, actually, she she adapted well and she engaged with it. Um, Jordan, who, who speaks quite openly about her Asperger's and stuff, like sometimes the travel to and from college can be quite disruptive to our life. So the removal of that meant that there was an extra calmness in her day um, rather than being stuck on packed buses and stuff. But she does miss Trinity life and being around friends and having that kind of social aspect. Uh, the youngest girl was kind of in the end of first year and she she spent a lot of time, <laughs> a lot of time in bed. Um, she taught herself some new skills. She baked, she has lots of allergies, so she's done lots of baking. Um, I'm pretty sure she turned on the camera and on, on Zoom, made it look like she was in the Zoom class, classroom, turned off the camera and uh, possibly went back asleep Many for the rest of the year. So I kind of just in, in that moment uh, I could kind of battle against this or I could just facilitate the fact that, yeah, she'll, she'll take in on what she needs and, and, and we were in a nice position that was only first year that she was in, you know, so she had plenty of time to catch up. But on it, I suppose then the interview in my political life was there as well so I was in the middle of an election and um, now thankfully the Shannon election for Trinity no one's knocking on doors anyway so it is kind of all done online so it didn't disrupt that but I suppose the early days for me was ensuring that um, that the disruption doesn't bring that extra layer of educational disadvantage to, to many homes um, in Ireland so one of the, the first week in lockdown I remember um, or the first day before lockdown in the very first lockdown um, myself and uh, the then Minister for Education, John McHugh, met in the education department and I had some proposals around how we deliver, continue to deliver the, the free school meals. Because um, I suppose they, you know, all, to all of a sudden stop that. Yeah. Um, the school is not just about so going families. to class, it's also yeah. about providing social support exactly. as well as all exactly. sorts of social And the, with the sanctuary of school removed for so many children. Yeah. Um, 
the fact that there was still a connection through the school meals programme to not only provide the food, but also provide the connection between home and school life and make sure that there was some some support system still there in place. And of course, it was an enormous controversy over in the UK as well, where there had to be a long-running campaign to try and continue the school yeah, meals. Yeah, the, the Department the, of Education were amazing, and yeah. Joe McHugh was and amazing. We're very grateful for that. I mean, Billy, yeah. you had kind of a, a, a dual-edged experience because you normally would be lecturing at this time of the year, but that work with international students here in Dingle is not happening this year because of the disruption. You also have two girls who would be who were in school when the lockdown happened and the move to remote learning happened. So what was your experience here in West Kerry of the disruption to your work in education, but also their experience in school? Yeah, and it, it's they're very much interrelated. I think uh, on a personal level in our household was we had this tremendous veil of uncertainty about the future for myself and my wife and trying to keep the kids on the straight and narrow in this, you know, and the, the whole, one of the most overwhelming themes of this whole thing is we've always relied on experts of, and people who know what's going on with some kind of answer and there were no answers to this. So the kids are in this environment where they're watching parents struggling with this tremendous um, change in their reality and they're experiencing this really tremendous up, upheaval and I think you know we were very fortunate in lots of uh, ways where we were the size of the school the, the environment and the nature that um, in which the kids are being raised you know compared to other people who may not enjoy those benefits so on the one hand you're trying to focus on all of the positive things that you have in this sort of maelstrom and sort of in, you know um, reinforce that in the kids and to be grateful for thing, the things that are okay about the current situation but also um, you know you're, you're, you're casting your mind to people who may not enjoy those things but there are tremendous disadvantages to it as well. And kids that young, it's not just the ABCs, it never was. And that has become so apparent when you take that away. You know, the, the teachers were wonderful, um, ringing, calling over to the house with work and dropping it off. You know, we, we, we had that luxury in a small school. So again, that was part of the advantages that, that we uh, enjoyed here. Um, but again, the teachers were operating under this terrible cloud of uncertainty, not knowing what the correct thing to do at any given time was and moving young kids over to this online learning environment. Of course, it has its advantages and it's so much better than just cutting them off and leaving them. But um, it's it's very limited in other ways and kids learn in so many other ways than I wonder, just... I wonder if I could pick you up on that because... One thing that does seem to have become apparent, and it's apparent in what all of you have said as well, in the sense of John saying about students working with you to come up with the new ways of doing things, and then you talking about how your daughter in many ways was able to learn differently because some of the anxieties that she had in her education were taken away. And you were saying about for your daughters, like it's not just about the ABCs, is it? We've all become much more aware that learning is not just showing up in a classroom at a set time. There's all sorts of other learning that was taking place during the lockdown that parents and children and educators were suddenly having to think much more laterally about all these things. And I wonder, you know, how did you adjust then when the girls went back to school? Like, do you think that they're learning differently because of that experience? Or do you think that it, like, was it just sort of, they were so excited to be back? Or how did, how did that work? Well, there were, there were certain anxieties and kids would pick up on those. So I think there's, you know, I'm sure a lot of kids un, um, experienced trepidation going back and not 
and but but also great excitement at seeing their friends and even back in this very familiar, comfortable environment of learning. But you realize how quickly um, all of the extra things, just being in the environment with other kids and particularly for them as well, they're in this small school. There's, you know, less than 30 kids in the whole school. So they're mixing with kids of all different ages. And that's really important as well. The younger ones are learning from the older ones and, and, and all of that. But you know, there's this, there's almost a physicality to learning, just this embodying this way when they're taking in information and all of that is missed when it's happening through a screen. Yeah. Um, so I think the richness of their education became incredibly apparent to them and to us when they go back and they realised what it was that they were missing. So, you but know... I wonder, John, has, has that been apparent to you at third level, this idea that what you're getting out of an education, and particularly university education, which is supposed to involve a lot more than just what goes on for the modules and the credits and everything else. You know, all of the things that the students have had to adapt to, in particular this semester of doing society events online and seminars online and all the extracurricular things online. Do you feel that there have had to be adjustments and how can we make future adjustments to make sure that that kind of life-wide element of an education is emphasised as well as the bits that are assessed and the bits that are rigidly laid down in curriculums and so on? What I love about this conversation is we've moved away from talking about students to learners, actually. And I think, I think we're all learners if we're really honest. And I think yeah. what this brought to focus for me in the last number of months is our faculty were learning and our students were learning in the same space. And it was that magical moment where everybody felt actually the person at the top of the classroom, whether there's a lecturer or faculty or whatever, they weren't the font of knowledge, actually. So that sense of purpose, of co-collaboration, of, of learning. So I think we, we've all seen this, actually. Um, and I think that for a research-intensive university, of course, we do research going on all the time as well. Um, so we have that really interesting mix going on. So I, I use the phrase, so I, you know, I've increasingly used this phrase called life-wide learning. So lifelong learning is we're all familiar with from the, from the very young primary school right through to the grave, if you want to be really honest about it, because we should be learning all the time. And then the life-wide element, are those things that happen outside the classroom. Uh, they happen in, in that sense of place, that sense of conversation, that music, that drama, that whatever it is that's special for somebody, whether it's in the playing field, whether it's in the core of society. But I think maybe as a learner myself that we may have not discovered how creative our young people are actually, and not so young people, because I think, again, we fall into the trap that all the students are young, and of course they're not. Um, but I think, you know, we had 140 societies having their, their AGMs online. Wow. Know, and we never had so much participation by students. So in, in, in a very interesting way, and I think we come to the future later, but I think one of the challenges for me today is that we went from an online to a blended. And now what will the world look like in that new blended model where we, we can enable learners to work from wherever they are in the world, actually, or if their flexibility or their caring needs or whatever they are, they're looking, being looked after or looking after. And I think the responsibility in all of, us is, all of us is to ensure whatever that model looks like, that we can have a classroom of people, but also we can have people coming in remotely. And I have no idea how we're going to do this, yeah. but I'm confident that what we've seen over the last number of months by our learners, all of us, students and, and faculty or whatever teachers, that I think something special is really going to happen. You, you made know. a really interesting point there about like, you know, what is a student and what is a learner and how these things all overlap and how our kind of stereotypes of who a student is and who a lecturer is and who a, a, a teacher is and so on can often be very rigid. And I wondered, Lynn, if I could ask you, you know, you've been very active on so many education issues as a senator, as you mentioned on the school meals, but also on school costs and some of these other issues around inequality. And you yourself had a very non-traditional in the kind of rigid way that we think of how one is supposed to go through the education system uh, experience yourself. I wonder, first of all, if you could tell us about that, but also whether that has impacted on the way that you think about 
your daughter's education and also the work that you do on education more widely? Yeah, I think I think my own experience through education has shown me that nobody learns in any one way. And we've been trying to ram like 21st century young people into a 19th century education system. And we've not really moved in any shape or form to allow for all these diverse ways of learning and of teaching. And for me, I, I started out at 15, bringing Jordan with me. She went into Rainbow House, which was the creche, and I learned upstairs. Um, and for me, the two years there was a much more of a healing process. So I was, I was learning, but I was healing, which allowed me then to be able to you know, engage in education as a lifelong thing and not be so afraid of it, where the school system actually made me petrified of the idea of learning. And it took any sort of love that I had of learning as a primary school student, a young primary school student, it was battered out of me by the time I got up into second second uh, second level. So, like, I think um, me going through community education, and now I'm a master's student, so I'm, I, I am, like, a politician, but I'm also still a student. I'm a master's student now. I never thought that that would even be possible. And that's why, you know, the idea uh, that we could move to a space where people finally realise that the Leaving Cert is the most unequal uh, exam that anybody could sit because what investment and resources go into kids up until that point, like, are so far away from each other that the moment they even sit down with their pen in their hand, the inequalities have already happened, you know. Yeah. So colleges being decided on this um, this one state exam that is absolutely no reflection of people's intelligence or capabilities or diversities or, um, you know, I I would have done terrible on the Leaving Cert, but I don't quite find in my degree. So my ability to sit a Leaving Cert actually doesn't relate into anything of what I'm able to do at a university level. And I think I would love to see um, us really open ourselves up to that. But while we open ourselves up to the idea idea of different ways of learning we also need to ensure we don't then create a massive digital divide and there already is a digital divide and digital literary skills amongst those in in less well-off communities need to be really enhanced so that then there's not another wave of students flying through learning online and there's also another bunch of students that don't have the same access yeah. and ability to actually learn online and they can and that's why we need to like invest in technologies from when kids are four in school, teach them how to use the, the online world in a safe and, and meaningful way and make sure that that then stays with them right it's through. It's really interesting what you say about like forcing 21st century students through an, a sort of 19th century model. And I mean, I was thinking there, Billy, when you were talking about your daughter's going to small school, you know, with limited number of teachers in West Kerry and how personal that is. I mean, I went to a two-teacher national school here in Kerry when I was small and then really struggled to adjust to secondary school when I went to secondary school at age 12 and basically just stopped going to school uh, and did my junior cert and my leaving cert on my own. And I was very lucky to have parents who were able to support me with that. But it did make, you know, when I, when I went to college, the adjustment I had to make was social. Mm -hmm. The independent learning that a lot of students have to adjust to, I didn't find difficult because I'd already been doing that. And that kind of this year, I thought a lot about that, John, um, in terms of the Leaving Cert is this great moment, you know, single moment that does determine, you know, your access to college and so on uh, in Ireland. And it is a, in some ways a very rigid event. And this year, of course, we, we couldn't have that. We had to have, a, you know, the, the event itself was, was disrupted and we had to find different ways. I mean, how did you find in the university sector, you know, how can you have an Irish university admissions system without the Leaving Cert? And did that make you think of how we might change it in the future? Yeah, I suppose, first of all, I'd like to acknowledge those that did the try that they were in the Leaving Cert class last year, actually. Um, I think we shouldn't forget those. And I think the current class that are in the Leaving Cert, these are all young people who have been 
disengaged from their classrooms, from their teachers, but also from the, the events that, whatever the leave cert is that we've all been, well, some of us have been through it, it's pretty hor horrendous in parts. But it, there's also the social element of it, like there's the, the debts and the grats and all that kind of ritual and holidays and all the kind of things that come with it. And all these young people have missed all of that. Um, and now there's another cohort going in. Um, I think you've raised a really challenging question about admissions. Um, I suppose, first of all, University College Cork, like many universities, have a multiple admissions track into the institution. So in excess of, of over 25% of our students come in through what refer to, and I hate using the non-traditional. So what is traditional? I have no idea anymore, actually. Um, so you've got here, there, mature student, and a whole range of other mechanisms and I think really um, you're trying to balance and maybe we don't do this well you're trying to balance admission that's seen to be fair and equitable through some lens and that and as Lynn has said you know leaving cert is certainly not the one that you know there, there are strengths in leaving cert there are weaknesses and we can we can maybe chat about that so I think that first of all I'd like to say that the universities have different admission criteria they vary enormously and some of them will be mature applications uh, and, and arrange them as, as you will all know but I think we've got to stop and listen and learn and say okay this is what we presented this year. And I know that all the universities responded uh, extremely enthusiastically about increasing our quotas and doing all the kind of things that uh, we should be doing. Um, my worry about that, if I'm honest, is I'm worried about retention now because, you know, the same kind of things that bring people in, you know, it's, you're just harvesting for the sake of harvesting. I don't believe in that, actually. Um, so we may have put students that may have come onto programs now that they may not be best suited to. Um, I'm really proud in University College Cork. We have the highest retention rate, and that's nothing special about um, us. It's about making sure we get students to choose the right program. Because if you get the students onto the right program, they're much more likely to succeed. So it's a, it's a mixture, but, I you know, I want to assure everybody that we as a university sector, our registrars of all the universities used to meet every Monday morning during the crisis to see how we're going to face the, the demands and needs. And in, in a number of us were involved also with the Department of Education to see uh, what options might be available for the, for the, um, for the Leaving Cert. But I want to go back to one point, if I may, that, that was mentioned by Billy, is one of the real unsung heroes of the crisis from your teachers, actually, and you've referenced it, but as primary school, secondary school teachers and, yeah. and university educators, you know, nobody talked about it. I mean, it's not the front line aren't important. Of course they are. But I mean, the whole education, I mean, the young people were one of the few people who were last taught about, if I could say that, and that's not pleasant. But well, I, I ended up, my partner as a teacher, and during yeah. the lockdown, my uh, front room became a digital <laughs> classroom. So I got to see firsthand the incredible work that she was doing with children with special needs and with the, all the other children in her class and so on. And it was a great insight for somebody, like I have worked in third level, to see the ama amazing amount of work going on at different uh, levels of education. That also makes me think about your experience, Billy, as a, as a lecturer, as a teacher, that you have not had work this semester because of the absence of international students. And that's something, John, you were talking about, the different you know, admissions and different types of students. There's obviously been a huge disruption in that this year. How has that been for you as somebody normally who would be lecturing and involved in education like that, not being doing that? Well, you know, I'm not going to complain because ultimately I think when things get back up and running, right now I will be doing some online teaching and that is, it's as good as we can expect, I think, in the current situation and things have to be right before we bring people back into the classroom the way we always have. But truth be told, I don't think we're ever going to bring people back into the classroom the way we always have, and but just business as usual. I think this has pointed out too many flaws and too many advantages um, to ignore and that we can diversify the way that we're, we're looking at how we engage with students. I think remote teaching has a place. I think it has some very useful ways of bridging gaps. But one of the things that stood out to me um, as an educator was how, um, and you know, it, it kind of sounds trite maybe, but our, our 
shared humanity and our shared experience of this very, what was at the time quite a traumatic um, event. And it was suggested to me by one of, uh, the, one of the faculty, they said, um, because I was running a, a seminar class where the students had to do all the reading and then actually we sat around in a room and spoke about it. I didn't teach them anything. I just gave them questions, prompt them to talk to each other. And we had to move that online. So doing that very sort of, you know, being in the classroom, talking to each other, taking all the, all the other cues that you have um, and engaging in meaningful seminars, trying to do that online was difficult, extremely difficult. But one of my colleagues suggested start every session and go around and ask everybody how they are and say, what's the best thing that happened to you this week and what's the worst thing that happened to you this week? And let them all speak. And sometimes it took what seemed like a disproportionate amount of time out of the class before we got down to business at all. But inevitably, the students afterwards at the end, and I did it as well, I told them very frankly what the best thing and the worst thing in my week was. Um, and we were all going through this crisis together. And I think um, acknowledging that we are all people, learners, as you say, trying to do this thing together, I think that notion of, you know, seeing each other as people with all of our complexities, knowing full well that some people who do really well and we're going to succeed very well in, an, in, a, in a room are not going to do as well online and accommodating for that, being flexible about that. I guess that, that makes me wonder, like, as we look towards the future and you say, like, we can't go back to business as usual in education and hopefully not in many areas of life where we've seen disadvantages and inequalities exposed, but also advantages and new ways of doing things that have worked and have been positive. It makes me wonder for you, Lynn, working in the Shannon and in public policy, you know, do you think that there is an appetite for us to change? Because like we, you know, we're sitting around here talking about how the leaving search might need to change. Some of the education system is still very rigid. And, you know, it's over a hundred years since Patrick Pierce was calling it the murder machine and everything else. Like this is not a new conversation <laughs> yeah. amongst people interested in Irish education. We're having very similar conversations. On, in some ways, obviously there's been enormous change and advance in other ways as well. But at the same time, some of the issues have remained. Do you think that there is an appetite amongst people who work in education and who work in government and policy that after the pandemic or as we move out of the pandemic these new ways of doing things and a different attitude to things can be taken forward. Um, I think that change will come from educators and from students and learners and it will come from society because I think sometimes um, politicians are much less behind than the general feel of the public and it takes them a while you know sometimes they have to be dragged kicking and screaming into change you know and for me like with the if I was just to focus on the education system and um, leaving cert reform is something I've been speaking about for years and um, I would love to see an appetite there for it but in a sense the representation within politics most people that are in that space have benefited from the Leaving Cert as it is. So you need a bit more diversity in there to realise that actually the Leaving Cert is not for all. So I do hope they see the benefits of um, diversifying, um, you know, the student body and that they take that forward. But, you know, the barriers to education were there before the pandemic, they'll be there after the pandemic. So if, the, you know, I don't know if, if, if people were willing to ignore the inequalities, then, you know, I would like to be optimistic and say that they'll take this opportunity to address it. But I know the wider society has outside of politics. Yeah. And I've watched lots of different organisations try and ensure that families had like devices and stuff, you know. So some of the families that I supported to get devices and try to get broadband in their home, and they might also be people that were accessing counselling for because they were in recovery from addiction. So there was a real effort, like they'd be sharing the one small device around the house for many different reasons. So trying to actually 
put supports in place for that. So I do hope if we move towards a greater digitalised way of learning and we do reform the Leaving Cert, that we make sure we resource people to yeah. be able to actually access I that. suppose one thing that's really interesting about the idea of what has been shown to people, what people have seen in terms of being more aware of these things. You know, John, you mentioned earlier the idea of the black box, that when the pandemic first hit, the students were thinking, well, how is this going to work? Like, there's no way this is going to work. We're going to be disadvantaged. We're going to carry the can, as it were. And you, you opened up the black box by working together and by talking about it and finding ways to do it. And I think that there's other elements of our education system that have been like that. I think parents are probably much more aware of the incredible creativity and work, as you said, Billy, being done by teachers in classrooms and on digital classrooms as well, the, the huge efforts that they've made to make their learning more engaging and different. And in some ways, I suppose, it's about freeing that from the rigidities of the system to allow it to bring out the creativity in our young people. So I, it, it kind of made me think whether I could put you all on the spot at the end of our discussion, just in the sense to say, if there was something that you could change uh, or something that you hope would change after this extraordinary experience, when we get back to you know, the, the horrible phrase, the new normal or whatever, in the education system at any level, what would it be, really? I think just drilling down on the idea that people have different strengths and the totality of their capabilities should be reflected by a system that both facilitates that and assesses that in a meaningful way. So I would hope that more flexibility is built into the system to allow for the different types of intelligences, different ways of engagement, and just a broader way of looking at learners in that environment. John, that seems to pick up on the lifelong and life-wide yeah. learning that you're talking about. What would your... What would be I, your I, I, I'm being challenged by all of you, so I'm trying to work, find a, a little sweet spot in there. For, for me, I guess, is what I'd like to make sure, for the university education at least, that it is about discovery, um, that sense of discovery and learning. And for me, I, I did my PhD in 1984, and the person who supervised my PhD... Uh, did his PhD before Watson and Quick worked out the double helix. Wow. And today, our students are in learning and they can turn the helix virtually and they can take out molecules and they can see what happens when you start moving the surface of a nasty virus called coronavirus and actually through that discovery actually solve some of the world's greatest problems. So I'm interested in the sense of which we create that magic of discovery and we stop this didactic teaching and we actually get creation of knowledge right through. And I don't believe that even a first year can't actually generate new knowledge. Mm. So for me, if we could break that mold, and I think the moment is now, actually. Yeah. You know, I, I, I hear the, the really important points about equality, inequality, but I think in a funny way, technology, if it's done properly and university designed, can be absolutely opening up new opportunities for people like we've never seen before. So I'm kind of excited yeah. that we're going to discover amazing things and do amazing things to solve the world's problems, yeah. well, which John, are many. So, so it's a similar point you made, Lynn, about the idea that... The, you know, this is the moment to change things because things have been exposed. What would your sort of... I would repeat it again. I would completely reform the Leave Insert and I'd possibly create a national access year or a general year that all students do. If they, if they, if you choose the arts, if you choose the sciences, whatever area of study you're interested in, you everyone would do a general year and then they would, that general year would determine their progress into their degree, you know? Okay. So it's kind of like a national access year. Big ideas coming from all different levels of education. I've absolutely loved this discussion. I think it's been really inspiring, you know, given all the difficulties that people working in education have, have, have found this year. They've done enormous work, and I think there's great hope for the future in terms of changing things. Thank you so much to my guests, John O'Halloran, Lynn Ruan, and Billy McGlynn. On our next episode, Nuala O'Connor speaks to the writer Manchon Magan about his new book on the Irish language, 32 Words for Field. To make sure that you don't miss that or any of our future episodes, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. 
This has been a South Wind Blows production, and I'm Christopher Kassan. Thank you for joining us, and I look forward to your company next time on Ireland's Edge.